Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Rasan Thomas became an award-winning podcaster, journalist, filmmaker, and criminal justice advocate, all while he was incarcerated. Uh, Listen as he and I talk about opportunity and inclusion and what those things mean to him. And we also talk very broadly about empathy and about who we fear, why we fear, and perhaps why we should fear just a little bit less. Here I am with Rasan Thomas. Thanks for being here and don't forget to subscribe. Welcome to the podcast, Rasan. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. So you were sentenced to 55 years to life for second-degree murder. Ten years after your sentence, you were transferred to San Quentin for good behavior. And there, at San Quentin, you became a filmmaker, a restorative justice leader. You were the president of the San Quentin Satellite Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. You became a co-host and co-producer of the podcast Ear Hustle, which became a DuPont Award winner, a Pulitzer finalist. (laughs) Something changed in you when you got to San Quentin. I think I was always like that. I just didn't know where I was supposed to be. And I lacked opportunity and inclusion. So the magic of San Quentin is opportunity and inclusion, right? And I needed to heal. Those are the three things, the three magical things that happened at San Quentin. Healing, opportunity, and inclusion. And the thing about opportunity and inclusion, if I would have got that in my neighborhood, I would have never had to go. I would have never been in San Quentin. And so I always wanted that. So I'm not sure if, don't get me wrong, I did grow as a person. But I was always trying to find a better way. I just didn't know what that way was. I felt like I had more obstacles than opportunity. I was frustrated. Um, at an early age, I was picked on a lot, Went through, lived in a really rough area. I felt like I had two solutions, fight back or be a victim. And I didn't like either choice. But I chose to do something violent, especially after my brother got shot in front of me and I ran. I felt like the biggest coward in the world. You don't run and leave a little brother behind. So I never wanted to feel helpless to anybody else again. And that's, that set me on a path of carrying guns. Prior to that, I never touched them. And I never, you know, this, it's, it's, it's not something I wanted. But anyway, fast forward to incarceration, I'm sitting in prison with a 55 life sentence and two kids out there. And I always said I was never going to be like my father, who was never around, ended up incarcerated, dope fiend, dead by the time I was 15. And I was like, I'm never going to be like him. I'm always going to be there for my kids. And now I was with a 55 life sentence. And so at that point, two realizations came to me. One, my anger was destroying me. The way I was fighting back to oppression, the way I was fighting back to victimization was just making matters worse. And two, I needed to do something positive, whether I ever come home or not. And so I decided to be a writer and I started writing from Calipatra, but I didn't know how I was, what I was doing. I didn't have any mentors. And for 10 years, I worked on this book from Guns to God, um, a cautionary tale about how guns don't make you more powerful, it actually make you weaker. And that you know, it's, it's, if it's not God's will, you're invincible. You can't be killed unless it's God's will, right? Because I'm still here. I'm not supposed to be here. And so I get to San Quentin, and they have everything I've always dreamed about. I create a writing class, a college on the compound, a media center with a, a newspaper ran by incarcerated people with real journalists coming and train you to be a real journalist. And I was blown away. I got involved in everything. And this is when I found out that this 250,000 word manuscript that I worked on for 10 years was horrible. And I had a lot to learn. <laughs> I read something where you talked about meeting the mother of one of your victims. 
and how that was really an experience that caused you to take accountability. The circumstances that resulted in your sentence, um, as I understand it, it was a drug deal gone wrong. Uh, you fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, you killed one person, wounded another. Thus, uh, the sentence. At some point, you met the mother of young men who were killed, who were struck down by violence, yeah. and that impacted you. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that experience. Yeah, prior to that incident, I had felt like what I did was stupid, but not wrong. I felt it was stupid, broad daylight, Marijuana is not worth it. We spend more on the lawyers. Life is more important than property. But I didn't feel it was wrong because they initiated the violence with the gunplay. You know, they were robbing us. Uh, when I met that black mother, uh, it made me realize that they're human beings. And before we get to the fact that they did whatever they did, I was selling drugs. I was in the criminal lifestyle. I went there with a gun and a chip on my shoulder from when my little brother got shot that if anybody tries anything, I'm going to shoot him. And so I committed, a, did a whole bunch of wrong before we even get to, I set, it, I set that whole thing in motion. And because of that, all of our mothers are crying, right? The way that somebody made that black mother cry. And so I feel like I was part of that. I feel like I caused that pain too. And I was causing all this pain to all these wonderful women who are the backbone of our society. I just felt like I couldn't hide behind justifications anymore. Like there is no justification for killing somebody over a bag of marijuana. This is a quote from you. There is nothing I can do to make up for what I did. It's impossible, but I try to honor your victim by making amends. What does it mean to make amends? So what it means to make amends for me is to save some lives. I took a life. I got to save some lives. And I'm really inspired by a movie called Seven Pounds with Will Smith where he killed seven people in a car accident because he was texting while driving. And to make up for it, he found seven worthy people to give his organs to. And he committed suicide in a way that would preserve his organs. And they made sure that his organs went to these seven people. I'm not willing to commit suicide, but I feel like if I save enough lives, in some way I can pay it forward in some major way. Um, But the sad part is I'm really doing really good out here. Um, I'm having what I feel is amazing impact, but it will never mean anything to that family. And there's nothing I can do, so I just got to keep doing. You've talked about uh, creating solutions, creating solutions to cycles of violence, uh, creating solutions that will better turn uh, folks who are inmates in uh, prisons and jails to productive, tax-paying members of society. And you've also indicated that you think you can be a part of that solution. You've described yourself as proof of concept. Tell me what that means to you. How are you proof of concept and what concept? The concept that if we include people in our society instead of exclude, you know, if you can't find love from society, you'd be like F the world. If you feel like F the world, you're going to join a gang. You're not going to follow the laws. They don't apply to me. I never voted anyway. Nobody represented me in Congress, right? And so if you're not included, then why would you follow a society's laws that, that are designed, that feel like they're designed for you to fail? The second thing, if you have, a, if you live in, in a neighborhood where seven out of 10 people don't make it, you can't point to the three people and say, you could have made it. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You have to give people more opportunities and obstacles. And then if they fail, you're like, yo, you had everything going for you, bro. But that's not how society works. If you have everything going for you, you get a really fancy lawyer, your family shows up in court and you get probation and we get triple life, right? We work backwards. So I really feel like uh, the solutions to violent crime are healing creating more opportunities and obstacles and creating a society that's inclusive, right? That loves us all, not just a neighborhood where, not just a society that feels like if you're a certain race, anybody can kill you, cop or robber, nobody's going to care, right? 
And so I'm creating those solutions and they work for me. First of all, what makes me really optimistic about how people can change and what our society can be is I was in San Quentin at a time when there were 2,500 people convicted of life sentences. And San Quentin is a security nightmare. It is five tiers with no visibility by COs, no, no, no guardrails to stop you from being thrown off the fifth tier. Everybody, like 25 people were there, half of them committed violent crimes, half of them were three strikers that shouldn't even be there. But half of them really did something crazy, right? Really did something really violent. And it's one of the safest places I've ever been. Like I've met Clay Thompson there. Draymond Green there comes play dominoes. Like Jack Dorsey, like um, Z- Mark Zuckerberg. It's one of the safest places. Jake, like all these people come wandering around the prison. We're like this little uh, public information officer. This guy got to be like five, six. <laughs> I mean, there's no security. It's, it's, it's so smooth, right? And so it proves to me that if you include people in society, like how, give them access to make them feel important, make them feel like they're part of our culture, part of our world. And healing. Under, uh, so when you're traumatized, it can create an unconscious compulsion to feel powerful, to make up for when you felt weak, when you were victimized. It's an unconscious compulsion and you can't even help it. If somebody pulls the trigger, even if you make a, a conscious decision to do better, if you don't heal, that trigger's there. All somebody has to do is pull it a little harder, right? And all your job, all your good work will go out the window. And so in San Quentin, we have access to healing. And so once you heal and start hearing other people's stories and understand like, wait, this is why I'm doing all this? Because my brother got shot? Oh man, I got to forgive myself. I got to forgive the person that shot him and move forward. Now that trigger's not there anymore. You know, I know I don't know if you were ever 100% healed, but you're 90% healed, and so stuff doesn't even bother you anymore. And if it does, you can track it. You're aware now. You're not unconscious. So you're like, oh wait a minute, I'm feeling some kind of way. I need to leave the room right now because you ain't making sense, right? And you just won't let violence happen again because you also know the cause. You're also in touch with your humanity. You're in touch with remorse. And so I'm, I created a program that connects people to society. It makes them part of their industries. It works for primarily with writers and, and artists because under the First Amendment, that's the one thing we can really do, the one part of us that's still free. And in California, specifically, uh, under California Penal Code 2601, under the Don Bill of Rights, you can sell your art. You can sell your intellectual property. You can sell your manuscripts. And so I use that to get people paid for their work. We get people in Rolling Stone Magazine, the New York Times, Boston Globe, and we get them paid for their work. And so this program worked for me to the point where prior to having this program, I published eight stories in seven years and made $400 and nobody really heard me but the choir, right? I'm telling like, what do you mean give teachers guns? That's a dumb solution to gun violence, right? And nobody's hearing me. Nobody come to ask us. They're asking senators and gunshot victims. Gunshot victim can't tell you why they were shot. You got to talk to the shooters, right? Uh, so nobody was making sense out there. But after I created this program, I got published 31 times and uh, I'm sorry, 41 times in 31 months. And this is all while you were still incarcerated. While I was incarcerated. I hit the Boston Globe, all this, right? I've also was allowed to make films. And I didn't make any money from making films because you can't use in-state equipment. But I came in with content. So now when it's time to go for a grant, people are like, wow, look at your film. You did that inside? Okay, here's a grant. Let's see what else you can do. And my life is different. It's great. It's amazing. I don't know how people make it out here. It's really expensive. It's rough out here, but it's pretty smooth for me. <laughs> One of the other uh, incredible things that seems to have happened for you while you were in San Quentin was that you became a member of this Thousand Mile Club, which is now uh, the subject <laughs> of a much celebrated documentary, 26.2 to Life. Why are you laughing so hard? <laughs> what is so funny is... um. I came in last. I don't know if anybody paid. It took me six hours. (laughs) And then I came home and ran the New York City Marathon. 
out of 50,000 people, I came in 48,000 and something. The only lady I beat was the lady in the wheelchair and, and another lady on crutches. I dusted them, but everybody else beat me. And yet it, it got, it, it, I'm getting all this press binders. I don't understand how coming in last is, is, is his thing. Darshan, you like hold the record, right? For like the slowest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you hold the record for being the slowest. The slowest, slowest. person in the so you were trying to like it, win by losing, Rasad. You were trying to win by losing. I was just trying to finish the race. That's all I wanted. But I think I think nobody likes the people that come in first because we can't come in first, right? It's really hard to beat that guy. But everybody can beat me. So everybody loves me. Everybody can beat my time. Everybody, everybody loves the guy that can beat. You are my favorite marathon runner. You are my favorite marathon runner. See? See my that favorite. Um, But, you know, on a serious note, you talked about how being in that running club while you were incarcerated helped create community. And it helped create community for the participants because for so many inmates, uh, when you are incarcerated, you're, you're abandoned. Uh, you're abandoned by family. You're you know, you are no longer a part of the life uh, on, on the outside. But this run club, this uh, the, the Thousand Mile Club, which is now uh, the subject of a documentary, which you're also in, um, it, it gives people community. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So being from New York City, my family didn't abandon me. But being so far away, I went as long as 10 years without a visit. And so sometimes the only um, part of... Uh, the, like the first time I ever got to really see people come into prison and come see us uh, that wasn't a family member was the Thousand Mile Club. They would come down that hill. They would come in the rain. Like, these people are crazy. They would come on Friday mornings, Monday nights. They're so reliable. They're consistent. You can rely on them to come in. They'll come in. They'll try to come in if it's a lockdown. Try, if the prison lets them in, they're coming in. And so to have people that, not only that, they're top runners. One of them, like elite, like Dylan Bowman is like elite runner. Diane uh, Fitzpatrick, she like uh, qualified for the Olympics. And like she was a, like a two or three time Dipsy said, went like these people are real deal runners, like they ultra marathon runners. Frank, awesome. And so for them to come spend their time with us, it just it felt beautiful. And like I said, stuff like that switches your allegiance. Like if you were like on some gangs and all this, the gangs don't got your back. You get locked up. Nobody buying you a lawyer. Nobody sending you nothing. But then you you see that commu- the community cares about you. That's who you want to give your allegiance to because they give you unconditional love and support. What do you want to tell people about? how to better facilitate solutions that will create opportunity uh, for people who are incarcerated and ultimately are going to rejoin society. Um, Something else you said, I thought it was really powerful, uh, that you said you've seen, I'm quoting you, I've seen the impact of therapy and having a connection to the community, feeling like you're part of the society and not some outcast that can't even vote like a refugee in your own country. That's haunting. Um, I know that there are many efforts uh, in some states, some have been successful in uh, restoring the right to vote uh, to, to felons and to those who've lost it. But what is that experience of feeling like an outcast in your own society? What is that? Describe what that feels for people, because as you talk about, as I've read about some of your, you know, the earlier things in your childhood, it almost seems like you were always kind of growing up and trying to navigate this space outside of, you know, what a lot of folks think of as normal and, and healthy. What does it feel like to be an outcast or a refugee in your own country? 
uh, it hurts and it can it can create a desire for you to try to prove that you're worthy and in trying to create the, and, and try to prove that you're worthy it, you end up doing a lot of harm and a lot of damage and so two examples of that um, for me I wanted to respect the the people around my way not the community so much but like the tough guys the cool people all those guys right I wanted their respect and to get it, I felt like I had to be tough. I had to be violent. I had to respond to any altercation with aggression. And I got their respect, but it was worthless. They were, they were, it was the respect of losers because everybody that was cool back then ended up dead, in jail, drug addicts, bums. They didn't make it. <laughs> I mean, so it was worthless. The other way we try to get respect, and I think we're all guilty of this, bad money management, right? Mm. We, make, we already poor. Mm. Right. And instead of like trying to save every little dime to try to get out of this poverty, when we do get some extra money, we want to buy something to look rich. Right. So now we're making it harder to climb out of poverty because we're trying to look rich because we're trying to prove we belong here, that we're not bums, that we want, we want that acceptance. We want to be looked at as, you know, just with respect and admiration. And if you seem like you dress bummy, people judge you like that. Um, so I think that's something we all fall victim to. But I just want to remind you something that broke my heart. And I just watched this on the news. I didn't feel it myself, but it felt like I was feeling it. During Hurricane Katrina, when the floods came, the levees broke, there were people trapped with water that was dirty, that was diseased infested, right? With dead bodies. And it was like not safe, not healthy to be around this. And people blocked the bridge. I mean, you could have just walked out of New Orleans, but people blocked the bridge with guns and pickup trucks because they were worried about somebody breaking in their house. And so, and it probably would have happened. Somebody out of a million people passed through this neighborhood, somebody's gonna break in. These, these are poor, these are poor people, don't have much. And they just lost what little they had in the flood. So yeah, somebody might really do break into your house, but not most people. But you decided that property was more important than us. And you called us refugees. And how does that, that's just, that's heartbreaking to think that you helped create the economics with this country, what, through your ancestors being slaves. You helped this country be what it is and they rather let you die in a flood, right? It just, it's heartbreaking. What would you say, Rasan, to some of those people? And not necessarily the people who are on the bridge with guns saying, uh, you know, don't cross the bridge. But, um, you know, just like some people might commit crime, that's not most people. Uh, just like there are some people who might, you know, hold a gun and prohibit folks from coming to get water. I don't think that's most people, but I do think that there are an awful a lot, there are a lot of people, an awful lot of people who are afraid, um, who are in fear now. And sometimes those are reasonable fears. You know, I think sometimes there can be a tendency to kind of write off people who are nervous about crime as, uh, you know, being the nervous Nellies and, you know, you don't really get it and that's not, but, you know, there are some very frightening things happening in, in, in communities and people are wrestling uh, with a lot of fear. What do you want to say to those people? And, you know, when I say, what do you want to say to them? Yeah. I'm thinking about your, your being proof of a concept. I'm thinking about your desire yeah, to yeah, create yeah. solutions. How do you talk to folks who right now, um, have a lot of real and legitimate fear about crime? Yeah. I think that what they actually have to fear is rare, right? It doesn't feel rare, because we created a situation where people have more obstacles and opportunities. They're desperate. And if you watch like Walking Dead or any apocalypse movie, the rules of survival are different. What people do to survive, how their morals and principles hold up under pressure, it's, it's an extreme test and not everybody passes it with morals and principles, right? 
And so first thing we have to do as a society is stop putting people in those circumstances and then blaming them for it. We have a society that holds the people with the least power, the most responsible. And I feel like I'm having huge impact. But to be honest, I got 60 people in my empowerment avenue program. Right. The stories they write have an impact. But in order to have real change, it has to be systematic change. There's two point two million people in prison. There's millions and millions of people in, in poverty. It has to be systematic change. And we have all the resources. We have everything we need to make to make this world the way it's supposed to be, except the will to change. And the reason why we don't have the will to change, we all crazy. We all need therapy. Y'all need to go to San Quentin and take some grip, some God raising the power, some restorative justice. Uh, so I would definitely tell people that the reason why you're scared is because somebody created a situation that puts us in, in danger because there's less resources for certain people. You know what I mean? And if we just share the resources, we wouldn't have to worry. The other thing I would say is that there are some people I just don't understand. There are some people on death row that I don't, I don't know if therapy is the answer. I don't know what to do with them. They so rare, though, we could probably fill up one prison with all 4,000 of them across the nation. Right. But those 4,000 people you worry about, they don't look like me. <laughs> you worried about me. <laughs> you got to go see what these dudes are. They don't look nothing like me. You watching the wrong dude. All I need is a hug and a job. <laughs> and I'm saying that dude, I don't know what you got to give him. That's the one you got to worry about. That, that cop that was running around. Oh my God. Some of these people, sheesh. I'm talking about the cop that's raping and murdering women in, in, in California. They're looking like a normal dude. And they caught him in the sixties, whatever. I mean, there's some people that you worried about the wrong race, the wrong people. Oh, y'all tripping. Well, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> Go visit death row. Go see what they look like. You know, it's like you're <laughs> laughing. Um, I think with a well-placed sense of humor, but, it is interesting, Rasan, like what people decide is, you know, the face of crime. What does a dangerous person look like? You know, there, there are these assumptions that people uh, draw. But I also think what's interesting is what we think the face of a traumatized person is, like what we think of and who we think of when we think of someone who's traumatized versus someone who is violent. You grew up thinking that your father had been murdered for the little bit of money that he had, but it turned out yeah. that he'd actually committed suicide, that he'd taken his own life. What was it like for you getting that story? And when did you when did you finally learn that it was it was suicide that had taken your father that he'd taken his yeah. own life? Um, so when I heard my father was murdered and grew up believing that, that's when I started carrying knives because robbery. Somebody was always trying to rob me, and I was always fighting for my stuff, and I was tired of it in general. But being that believing that he got killed for like two hundred bucks or whatever, his wallet was missing. He had no real money, so what could it have been? It made me think of every robbery as this extreme circumstance, as life or death. It also made me um, see my own people as demons, as capable of killing me for nothing, right? And there are some people that would hurt you for your property, but most people are bluffing. Some guys got empty guns, like all kinds of stuff. They're just trying to scare you. Sometimes they might hit you to, so that way you take them serious because they don't want to hurt you. But most people are not willing to actually hurt you or kill you for your property, right? It's rare. But I saw everybody that's willing to kill me for my property. And I felt like I'm not letting you take it, right? And so it set me on this path of violence. Even when my brother got shot, the part of the reason why, the guy didn't just come up to us to shoot. He just wanted to, 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 to rob us. But I refused to let my neighbor rob me, right? Because of the image. Like, how do you let your neighbor rob you and live in the same neighborhood? I started, so I tried to resist the robbery, you know? And that's what, and because of what I believe my father, what happened to my father. And that got my brother shot and set me on this path of gunplay. Um, so when I found out that it, he wasn't even murdered, I was like, oh, my God, I committed all this violence because of a lie. All this violence. 
because of a lie. And so it was like, wow, I was blown. I was devastated. I was like, sheesh, it took me like a month to like even mention it to anybody. I walked around with a suicide letter for a while. Just I couldn't even believe it. And so how I found out, too, is I have a, a little brother on my father's side that I met when he was an infant. And once my father died or whatever, we got separated. He had a different mother. I never saw him again. And I always looked for him. He, he'd always look for me, but we never found each other. And I kept writing about like how my father was murdered. And so one day he found me and he wrote me like, yo, why you keep saying our father was murdered? I said, yo, that's what grandma said. He said, nah, bro, he committed suicide. And I'm like, no way. My, grandma wouldn't lie. And he sent me the suicide letter. And I was like, oh my God, this guy really committed suicide. I just couldn't believe it. I know that when you were uh, really young, uh, when you were a young kid, you liked to code, you know, in that kind of uh, early version of computers uh, that uh, we had back in the day. You're not that old, but a little while ago. <laughs> um, so, but I, I think about what your path might have been if, as a young man who clearly had some aptitude for computers and science, if that young man had perhaps learned that his father battled with depression and suffered from depression, which resulted in his taking his life. And if instead of kind of being, hearing this narrative that was constantly reinforced, you know, you got to be ready to protect, you know, take a life if necessary, like, because there's always violence. You know, I wonder how things might have been different if someone had really kind of engaged with you, a smart, brilliant young man, about trauma and what that looks like. If instead of being initiated into a world of violence, you'd been educated about taking care of yourself. Um, I know that's a, a, a big kind of detour from the path that your life took, but do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about how things might've been different if you'd yeah. learned the truth about your yeah. dad in the beginning? Yeah, the two things I think needed to happen as a kid, one was me and one was with my mom. And with me, I needed to not take things personal, right? Not take things personal. Cause that's, that's what made me escalate stuff. Cause like, don't get me wrong, I was picked on, but the way I handle it escalated. Now, now they don't just want to rob me or belittle me. Now they want to kill me, you know? But I'm escalating that. I'm creating this another dimension to, this, to these beefs. But if I just didn't take it personal, if I, like, you know, just really was securing myself, if I just healed, forgave myself, yeah, I wouldn't have responded in violence. I would have just been like, like, right now, I'd rather be a martyr than a murderer. And so, like, if somebody robs me, I just give it to them. And I don't have low self-esteem now. I'm not running around making myself a target with jewelry on in this poor neighborhood, right? I don't have anything worth taking. You take the credit card, I'll cancel it. It's all good. You can have it, right? Um, so definitely having self-esteem, healing, therapy, all that type of stuff, that, that would have been key. But the biggest key is my mom. When I think back of what I needed as a child, I needed my mom to have equality because if she was going to raise me by herself, she should have got her worth. She was a college graduate that never got her worth, right? Never got her worth. So now she has this woman with this great job that's not getting paid what she's supposed to get paid. So we still live in Brownsville with the degree. And then me seeing that, like, why do I go to college? Like, you got a degree and we still live here. That's not working. You know what I mean? So it was, it was in sociology and somebody came out with a report saying nothing's works. So money shifted from sociology to building punitive prisons. You know what I mean? So that report was devastating too. But like, yeah, it's really about equality for women. If she just got the dollar she deserved, we wouldn't have lived in Brownsville. And in Westchester, this would have never happened. <laughs> you have a lot 
to tell people. Uh, you were paroled in February of 2023. And tell us what you're doing now. Um, I know you're up to a lot. How, uh, how much time you got? Sheesh, you got no time <laughs> to explain all this? Sheesh, sheesh. Um, I mean, first of you all, were very is, busy is, while incarcerated. You were very busy while incarcerated, so I can only assume that now uh, you're you're even more so. It's worse because now people can call me <laughs> all hours of the day, <laughs> emails. Uh, so um, I'm very fortunate to be in demand. And I just want to contrast this to when I came home from prison in New York, I couldn't get a good job. I ended up going through the Fortune Society and they did give me a job, but I had two jobs and I think I barely made 400 a week. And um, having two kids that young, uh, as I was like 24, 25, uh, $400 a week was not cutting it not cutting it. And so I, I toughed it out, tried to do the right thing for a really long time. It just didn't work out for me. Uh, so now it's the complete opposite. I came home with savings already. I From your right writing, into right? Because you job. were making money, you From were making writing. money uh, while you were yeah. incarcerated on your articles. Yes. Yes. I walked out to a nice savings and then they did a GoFundMe for me, for me to raise money for equipment. So I got equipment that I needed uh, for my side hustles. But I walked right into the job of a producer for the Air Hustle podcast, which I was already doing inside, so I went straight to that. I walked into the executive director job for uh, Empowerment Avenue. Uh, and now I became a consultant producer for a Ken Burns project that's directed by Lynn Novick um, on, on the history of prisons. I'm also a consultant producer for a podcast called On Our Watch. And uh, on top of that, I just got a grant from Four Just Films and I raised some money through UC Santa Cruz Giving Day to make a film called Silent Treatment about how deaf people are fighting for equality in the California prison system. And so I got a lot to do. And I just got a fellowship to, oh, jeez, a, a, a fellowship from YBCA in California, a Council of the Arts. Uh, so just my life is full. But what I'm most proud of, my favorite thing is what I already said in Palm and Avenue. We have four or five people that have to pay taxes next year. And when I first created Empowerment Avenue, I envisioned that as something that I brought in a grant proposal. Like, I want people to come on with 100000 at least each. And people laughed at me, like, take that out. That's unrealistic. You'd be lucky to make two, 3000 a year. Uh, we have our first person that's, that's passing 100000 He's going to make more than 100000 next year. Uh, we have another guy that's in the 89000 club. A lady just got a book fellowship for 50000 Another guy that got a job for 34000 from his cell. We are doing it. And that's public safety because releasing somebody with a $40 in a bus ticket. If you're on parole, you're on life or in California, they got to give you transitional housing, but you got six months after that. You're looking for favors, luck, somebody like you. And if you're not a lifer in California, even if you did 20 years, if it's just a flat sentence, it doesn't have a life on it. You don't have housing necessarily coming. And so you're releasing people in desperate circumstances and wondering why the recidivism rate is 45%. People make a lot better choices when they have better circumstances. And I ask anybody who says, I would never do that. Let it be survival. Go through enough trauma and, and be in a desperate position where your family's on the line, where it's either laid out on the ground to be homeless or hope in the unseen or ask for help or what would you do? And the right thing is ask for help or be homeless rather than hurt somebody else. But can you respect that? Everybody's not going to make that decision. How does Empowerment Avenue help people make money while they're incarcerated? What's the process? With a bridge. We don't, we don't actually pay people. We connect them to people, to organizations that, and we advocate for them to get fair wages. So for instance, people in prison don't have access to calls for, for submissions. So you don't even know that the New York Times is looking for this this month. 
but we we inform people. We like let them know oh, that's that's a good writer. He writes about that. Let's contact him or give it, or throw it to all our writers. See, writes the best article. Everybody can pitch. And so we, we we're that barrier. We, we're, where you're submittable, where your email, where your we, we, we your notification of calls to submissions, where your connection to the art galleries, right? And so we, we remove the barriers that incarceration has. And then we facilitate the invoicing, the W-9 process. And then we recommend you get the money in your books, pay your restitution. Don't get, don't, don't get it. Don't take the hit. Right. And so that's what we do. And what we do that I even love even better is, like I said, we only have 60 people in the program. We're expanding. A lot more volunteers are coming on. A lot more funding is coming. But at best, at optimum, I think we might get to up to 100. This prison system is 2.2 million. And so what I need to spread more than anything is the philosophy of inclusion and economic empowerment as paths. See, we live in a world that we, 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 have this, uh, we let it get so bad that we have this urgency and we deal with the urgency, but we never deal with the root cause. And so it, the, dealing with the urgency you know, and the way we deal with the urgency just adds to the root causes. So, for example, if somebody's gangbanging and they commit a gang-related murder, you lock them up for gang-related murder. They still gangbanging in prison. Gangbanging still going on the street. You have not solved gangbanging. You're not any safer. Just one individual is incapacitated to a certain degree, but he can still send trauma home, really. So he's not even incapacitated, right? So you did not solve it. And so we live in a problem, a world where we, we, we're so distracted by the immediacy. Like we have to have an instant solution. And that's true. Somebody, some people need a dealt time out so they get to better headspace. They need healing centers. But you still have to go back and deal with the root causes. And the way we deal with it can't be a situation where they're warehoused and, tra and a traumatic experience, isolated and kept broke. Because that just perpetuates cycles of incarceration and, uh, and intergenerational poverty and all that stuff, right? And so we have to be smarter about how we deal with the immediate situation and really get to these root causes. So that way it all stops. Uh, one time I was at a, a, a class that was called Phil, Financial Empowerment and Emotional Literacy that Curtis Wall Street Carroll was teaching in San Quentin. And he had like 60 people show up for his class and about 25 of them were under 25. And he asked the whole class, how many of y'all tired of crime and incarceration and living the life you're living now? And almost every hand in the room went up from young to old. Nobody wants to be out in them streets. You talk about tough on crime, the streets got the death penalty. Ain't nobody tough on crime than the streets. So if the death penalty don't scare nobody, instant death penalty. I'm not talking about dying 10 years later or, or being on death row forever, never dying. I'm talking about the streets will kill you today. You know what I mean? Instantly. I mean, they might kill a family member because of you, right? It's rough out there and people still out there. And so we have to look that they're not crazy. Um, they traumatize. They, they, they fight over limited resources. And we have a culture that tells them they're not worth anything, right? That makes them feel small. So the only time they feel powerful is when they have a gun in their hand. And if they feel like they're going to die anyway, they don't care about tomorrow because they, they don't think they're going to make it to the day. And so we have to do better, man. And it's so easy. I just get us, and we just all get therapy. Just all tomorrow. Tomorrow, everybody go get therapy tomorrow. <laughs> then we can talk about fixing the money situation and all that. But it all starts with therapy. <laughs> uh, I, um, I don't know if that mass prescription for therapy is going to, if everybody's going to take you up on that. But I will say this. Uh, you, uh, your story individually, your work through Empowerment Avenue, you are creating a way to change root causes uh, for other people, to give them something else to hope for, to aspire to, um, and also creating a pathway back into the communities where they will end up uh, and where they can show up and be productive, pay taxes like everybody else, uh, and, yeah. and, and keep it moving. So well done, sir. And Rasan, you really you. honor me. You honor me with your time 
And thank you for sharing your story here. Um, it's really powerful. You are, you are, I, I don't want to sound like pedantic and like luxury. You're a lesson, but you are, you know, you are. Um, you have a lot to teach people. So thank you for being here with me today. Thank you. And I just want to say in closing, I appreciate you. And I can't wait to pay taxes next year. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thanks for the sign. You're welcome. Have a good day. 